So thank you for joining. So I want to just start by sitting. And I think what I'll do is give you a question to contemplate. So this will be more of a contemplation than a meditation. And the question is, who are you if you don't think about it? Okay, thank you. Did anyone experience any sense of insight around the question, who are you, if you don't think about it? That you'd be willing to share? Yes. So uh, Nina said that the first thing she noticed is that she can access what she is, but not who she is, and that it's a sense of beingness or isness. Uh, the distinction of who and what is always an interesting one, because we tend to think about ourselves in who terms versus what terms, uh, because who presupposes the existence of a personality. And so when, I'm say, when I ask you who you are, if I said, who are you, you wouldn't tend to say, I'm a human being. You would tend to say, I'm Jeff, or I'm Matt, or I'm Jen, or, you know, I'm a particular human being identified with by a name. If I asked you what you are, then you might say, you probably wouldn't say a human being anyway. You'd probably say your job, you know, because that, we tend to identify as our jobs. Uh, but I know when I write, I often end up in this little dilemma of should I talk about who you are or what you are? I really want to talk about what you are, but I don't want people to get offended uh, by the fact that I'm treating them like something that's not a personality. Uh, so anyway, very interesting. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Ah, very, in, very insightful. It was easy to figure out who I'm not. Um, you know, that's generally the root of Eastern paths. You know, they, they, they often will use the, uh, what they call neti neti, which is not this, not this. So you keep pointing at stuff going, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. And then in the end, there's nothing that you, uh, there's nothing left. Uh, and anything you can come up with is still not you. Yes, sir. comes out in the end to the I am. And it's that most holy word, consciousness. Right. And right. Mm -hmm. So he says it ends up being I am or just consciousness in the divine sense. So there's something I want to share with you tonight that I don't really know how to do. So we're just going to try and see what happens. Partly because it's not really something that can be shared. Um, it's something that can happen. And sometimes you can create a space in which the opportunity for it to happen is optimized. But it's never anything you can share because it isn't a knowledge that can be held in words. But here we go. Jen. OK, so when I said Jen, she went like this. <laughs> Matt, he didn't do anything, because he already knew the trick. <laughs> but Jen didn't know. She, so why does Jen look when I call her name? Condition. Condition. So the way we're taught, Jen looks because Jen is Jen. And when I use her name, She's responding to her name being called. Um, the 20th century philosopher John Dewey had a different view on that. You know, he was he was saying 
observing his own children and thinking about it, he was saying, well, really, when we just were downstairs at the Red Hat restaurant, we saw a little baby, so cute, just adorable little uh, cherub-like child. I'm pretty sure he has no idea who he is. You know, he didn't, I mean, I couldn't have been, you know, more than a few months old. Had a big smile, big eyes. Didn't look like there was any idea of who he was. But um, his name was Alex, because mother told me his name was Alex. And when I said Alex, he smiled. <laughs> now, I don't think he was going, oh, he's saying Alex. He must mean me. My name's Alex. <laughs> you know, he just heard Alex and smiled because he's probably heard it a hundred times or a thousand times before from his parents. And every time he smiles when they say it, they coo and stuff. And he likes that. So he, sa he smiles when he hears Alex in the hopes of getting cooing sounds or whatever it is that he likes. And, and so we get very good at responding to the sound of our name. And only later, when we have gone to school and acquired language and developed our capacities for abstract reason, then we're taught that we are Alex or we are Jen, and that when someone calls you, you should respond to your name. And we're taught all kinds of other things that you should do. If, uh... Now, what John Dewey wanted to say was, really, Everything that we do is just a conditioned habit. None of it is really uh, best described by me knowing who I am and then responding to that fact. It's really layers upon layers upon layers of conditioned behaviors, like when I call your name, you look. Uh, <clears throat> and so. You know, if you can imagine a big room and we started calling people's names and they were all looking, and you started to say, oh, it's all just conditioned habits. There's no people there looking around. There's just these physical uh, organisms that are responding to habit. And then part of the habit, so this is where it gets kind of interesting, part of the habit is not just looking when you're called, but part of the habit is looking and then thinking they're calling my name. My name is such and such. That must be who I am. So it's not a physical habit of looking. It's a mental habit of, of identifying yourself with your name. And then there's a million other ways that we identify ourselves. And we do it over and over and over and over again. But they're all really just conditioned habits. So we're conditioned to respond to our name. And then we're conditioned to relate to our name as if it's a label that, is, that means us. And over time, that conditioning keeps building and building and building until we develop a very strong visceral sense of being the somebody that belongs to that name. And so we feel like somebody who belongs to that. You know, you feel like a somebody. I don't think the little baby in the restaurant today feels like a somebody yet. They, I, I think it would be amazing to know what that little baby felt like. It looked really happy today. Uh, but it's probably not this, the sensation of being a somebody that we have. So I want you to look at your experience. Close your eyes for a second. So when I ask you, who are you, when you don't think about it, The only place you can go to is just your pure experience. And in the pure experience you're having, there is no identity. 
I don't know if you can see it or not, but if you, what happens when you sit that way is you go into these places where there's kind of no identity, there's just being, and then you'll feel something like your hand on your knee. And instantaneously, the sense of, of your body will, will appear in consciousness, and you'll think, that's me. Or a thought will go by, or a, a vision of the room will appear, and it'll, it'll instigate a visceral experience of being yourself sitting in that chair. But if you keep letting go, you'll see that all of that is just experience. Feel yourself in the chair right now. Feel your hands on your knees. Feel the chair pressing underneath you. You see, we take all of these sensations and then we amalgamate them into a sense of a body that we then feel like we have. But with your eyes closed, if you go really slow, you'll start to see that really They're all just sensations, feelings. There's a certain feeling that I then define as the feeling of my hand on my knee. I've been conditioned to interpret it that way. But if you really look at the sensation, there's nothing about it that's necessarily a hand on a knee. It's just a sensation. Now, it's, it's very hard to do this with your eyes closed. As soon as you open your eyes, it gets even harder. Because then you've got to deal with all the, the ways that you've been visually conditioned to see the world and to see yourself in it. Uh, and it all gets very, very, yeah, it gets very hard. So most of you, or some of you at least, have heard me say this, but I know others have not. So I'm going to. It's such a good example, I'm going to use it again, because I, I want to give you a visceral sense of how your sensation of being, your, being yourself is conditioned. So <clears throat> when you go out in the morning, before, you know, when it's still dark, just before it gets light, and you watch the sun as it appears, and if you were to watch it for a while, you would see it rising in the sky and it will look to you like it's rising. So this quote that I've been using a lot lately, and for those of you who have heard it, it's short, so it's not so bad. Uh, <clears throat> the philosopher Wittgenstein asked his student, why do you think it was that for so many years people thought the sun was moving around the Earth when, in fact, the Earth was rotating? And the student said, well, of course, it's because it looks like the sun is moving across the sky. To which Wittgenstein said, oh, what would it have looked like if the Earth were rotating? So of course, the punchline is the Earth was rotating the whole time. The reason it looks like the sun is moving is because that's, the way, that's what we thought was happening and because we use words like sunrise and sunset to describe that, which continually reinforces a, a visceral experience that, that after many, 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 many years of reinforcement, it actually becomes neurologically, sort of perceptually, the way we see. And so it would be, it would seem very obvious to the student to say it just looks like the sun is going across the sky. And, and then for Wittgenstein to say, oh, well, what would it have looked like if the Earth were rotating? So in the same way, I want you to think about 
you know, the question in terms of identity would be, why does it feel like I'm me? You know, and <clears throat> the answer is that you've been conditioned to feel that way. You've been conditioned to experience yourself as being the person who has your name that inhabits your body. And I know at this point is, is where there's a part of your mind that goes, okay, really? You know, what are we talking about here? I get it. I know that's what's going to happen, right? Because, because that's the way. See, my, my work is all about shifting paradigm, and it's so hard to do because it's just the nature of the way paradigms work. You know, it's the same. See, that, that kind of, that attitude, which is, you know, the, which I get. I get. It happens in my own mind, too. It's why it's so difficult for me to teach, because half of my mind is going, are you crazy? What are you talking about? You know, people are going to think you're a lunatic. Uh, but then the other half keeps going, and I just let that half speak. So, um, but, you know, when... Um, When Galileo or when Copernicus first said the Earth was rotating, people thought he was crazy, thought it was completely insane. In fact, I'm surprised Copernicus even got to live through that. I'm not, I, never, I have to go back and read why they let him live, because when Galileo said it a little while later, they were going to definitely kill him. Uh, so something happened in there. They got more afraid. When the, to the Yes, sir. Okay, hold on though. Okay, because we go a little slower. Because if you say, if I stop and I feel my heart pumping, right, there's already a million assumptions there. Like, because you've already defined what. So I want to say, if you stop and you feel whatever you feel without defining it as my heart pumping, you know, because maybe that's just what you've been conditioned to assume it is, right? It's just a sensation. And then you call it my heart pumping. And then, and then you want to ask me, well, if I stop and I feel my heart pumping and it's not my heart, whose heart is it? And then I want to go back and say, well, I haven't established that you have a heart pumping. And I know it all sounds crazy. And, and the, the, the end point here isn't going to be you don't have a heart, because I get it. We're meat and we have hearts. <laughs> I, I, I get that. And I'm trying to point to something so subtle and that it's so difficult to get through our conditioned ways of thinking that I have to do it this kind of bizarre way. Um, so if you just go with me, let's see what, where we end up. Uh, that's a great question, though. I mean, I'm not to be difficult. no, no, I totally am not feeling you. I'm feeling no difficulty whatsoever. Um, I'm, I'm feeling all sincerity, which I love. Um, Yes, so I was saying Copernicus. Are you going to ask me a question? OK, I'm just, I'm just a little, I get off track, and then I'll never get back on. But go ahead. Sorry. I think the question might be, are we our bodies? Well, hold on. Yes. <laughs> I got it. And I'm, and I'm saying there's another question, which is, do we have bodies in the first place? So you know, I'm going way back. <laughs> you know, this is, but this is, you know, if you, because if, the problem is my, uh, my training was all in enlightenment schools. So, you know, I'm, I want to go way back to like isness, you know, prior to bodies, because body is an assumption. And then people who do body practices get upset with me. And then they say, well, you're demonizing the body, which I'm not trying to demonize the body. I'm just trying to question our current concept of a body, because I'm not sure it's the ultimate end point. Um, but yes, that is, I think, the question. So Copernicus didn't get killed, so good for him. Galileo didn't get killed because he just denied that the Earth was rotating, and they let him off the hook. Um, the troubadours of the 11th century, uh, there were about 130 of them, supposedly. So these are the minstrels that would sing under the balconies of beautiful noble women. And they had this bizarre theory, which is that a human being could love another human being. And the church at the time said that was impossible because only God was worthy of love and only God could love. Uh, but the troubadours kept singing about how they were in love with human beings. 
And eventually, the French king found this so offensive that he organized a crusade. And in about 50 years, he killed all 130 troubadours. So that ended that. Uh, so I'm using those examples to show that whenever you start questioning deeply held beliefs, what the philosopher Richard Rorty calls our final vocabulary. So Richard Rorty was an American philosopher who died about 10 years ago. He had this great term, a final vocabulary, which is <clears throat> you know, when you, you keep asking questions, how does this work? How does, how does that? When you get to the, to the vocabulary beneath which you have no other vocabulary to use to describe what's real, so you keep on what's real, what's real, what's real, and then people ask you for refinement, for refinement, for refinement, and you keep changing your language. Change. When you get to the place where you get to your final vocabulary and there's, you have no words left to describe reality, that's when wars start. So he says this is, this is when fights start because nobody wants their final vocabulary challenged. So th this is the, the problem with paradigm shifting is it's inherently challenging our final vocabulary about what's real. So so in the paradigm that we are you know, steeped in, conditioned by, we assume that we are a somebody, and that that somebody exists in this meat, and that this somebody is uh, self-contained and existing over here. And then when we look at our experience, we see evidence. This is why, why challenging a paradigm is so, is so difficult, because the paradigm, the beliefs that you're challenging are the very beliefs that are shaping your current experience. So there's a set of beliefs. They shape your experience. So they give you the experience of being somebody here in this. And then uh, when you challenge them, it seems ludicrous. Because you go, well, this is obvious. Of course I'm over here. But the reason it feels so obvious is because we've been conditioned to experience it that way. That's why uh, the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said, it takes a very unusual mind to question the obvious. And this is what he was getting at. And so what I'm asking you today is to use your mind in a very unusual way. I'm, this is not so that we all end up in some bizarre interpretation of reality. All this is is so that we can loosen our minds up from the current paradigm so that something else might actually get in. I, I don't have an answer for you, really. I just have some possibilities I want you to entertain tonight and just see what happens to your head when you start to think of them. So I'm going to give you one now. It's a fun one that uh, I just started to use. I didn't make it up. <laughs> this is actually a classic thought experiment from, uh, I mean, at least in the, West, in, the, in the Western tradition, it was made famous by uh, Rene Descartes uh, when he started to question in this way and then decided um, he didn't want to trust anybody, uh, especially not the church. So what he asked himself was, and then I'm going to ask you the same thing, and then I want you to think about it. How do you know this is not a dream? How can you be sure that this is not a dream, that you're not going to wake up and be in bed? You know, dreaming this. Have, have any of you ever lucid dreamed? Anybody? Isn't it awesome? So lucid dream, this is like classically how, how this would always happen for me, because I, I used to really be into it. Um, a lucid dream would occur to me in this forum, where I'd be here giving a talk, and my mother would be sitting in this empty seat. And I'd be giving my talk, and da-da-da-da-da, and then I'd go, Mom? <laughs> and then I'd think, my mother would never come to this talk. And then I go, oh, it's a dream. And then once you wake up, you know, this is this, if you ever want to, if you ever try this, it's so awesome. You can get books that kind of help you do it, but it's hard. But, but once you realize it's a dream, then you're in this very awkward place because you start to get excited. And it's good if you get excited because the excitement is kind of what wakes you up out of the dream. So you're like, whoa. And then you pick stuff up you. <gasps> feels just like real. Oh my God, let's see what the water tastes like in dreams. Oh my God, it tastes exactly the same. 
But if you get too excited, then you wake up and you're in bed and you go, oh, darn, I want to go back to sleep. But if you don't, it, you know, so you try to stay calm enough so you don't wake up. But if you get too calm, you fall back asleep. And then you wake up and it's morning and you go, oh. But I, used, I got pretty good at it where I could really stay in the dream. And then you can do cool things like, because you're basically omnipotent, it's your dream. So I could say, hey, this will be great. I think I'll play a guitar solo. And I'll go like this, and a guitar will appear. And all of a sudden, I'll be magically awesome at it. And everyone, and then, then it won't be just you guys. I'll just envision a crowd of thousands. Uh, you know, it, it, it's completely, you can have anything you want. It's a dream. So the question is, how do you know this isn't a lucid dream? Because I can tell you that when you're in a dream, and you know, probably all know, because you've been in them, I'm assuming, they feel totally real when you're in them. You don't realize they're a dream until you wake up, and then you realize it was a dream because now you're comparing it to being in bed and going, oh, well, you know, I was just now in that rock concert, and now I'm in bed, so I think that must have been a dream. But it didn't feel like a dream when you were in it. So how do you know this isn't a dream? I mean, I've, I, you know, for the last 500 years, people have been asking this question, and nobody's really come up with an answer. But maybe you did. Doesn't matter if you know it's a dream or not. No. What? Okay. It doesn't matter if you know it's a dream or not. This is what his question. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that you know you can't tell. Right. Right. Well, if you know you can't tell, then um, then that opens up the space of a question. So to me, in the end, everything that I do is about how do you support people to live in the space of a question rather than the space of certainty. We all want to live in a space of certainty. I know the way it is. And I'm saying there's a whole other life that's possible for you if you're, opening, if you're living in a space of, of not knowing, uh, a place that's open and receptive and unsure. So that's why it's important to realize you can't tell the difference. Now, I can go back the other direction, and I can say, because we all say, hey, but obviously this is matter. And then I would say, well, how do you know it's matter, really? How do you know this is matter? And you, you might say, well, you know, and this is where you, oh my god, there's so many interesting things. I'm going to go in all kinds of directions. <laughs> this is the problem with talking. Um, you know, we live in a, in a scientific materialist paradigm. The scientific materialist paradigm is the church of the day. So in the Middle Ages, the church was the, was the Christian church, mainly in Europe. Basically, the whole idea with the church is, we know what's true, you don't know what's true. So. Then when Galileo came around with all of his mathematics, you know, and circles, and started to say the Earth was rotating, the church said, hold on. Or, or that the Earth was going around the sun, sorry. He, the church said, hold on, that is not true. Why do you know? Because we know, because we are the holders of truth, and you all have to just do what we say or we kill you. Right? That was kind of the, the basic idea. So. The Enlightenment happened, the Renaissance happened, all of it was about 200 to 300 years delayed because the French king decided to kill the troubadours, which was the actual beginning of the Renaissance, but then it all got wiped out, so then it took a long time before somebody else started it up again. Um, and, and the whole, you know, the Enlightenment, the whole big idea of the Enlightenment was a few people who said, you know, I think we can figure stuff out. You know, maybe we can use our brains and figure stuff out, and then we don't have to believe the church. And the church said, uh-uh, that's wrong. We're burning your books. We're going to burn you at the stake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, science won the battle. It took a long time. It's kind of a fascinating story. And now we live in the world where science is the new church. So the reason why we all believe that this is matter is because it says so in science books. I, I, I got so upset the other day. I get upset about really bizarre things. <laughs> I was watching one of these um, planetarium shows. I was actually in uh, Detroit uh, where I was doing a retreat. And the, the person who uh, was hosting me took me to a planetarium show, you know, like a, what do you call those things? The big screen, IMAX. 
and it was awesome. It was, uh, was it Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? And it was all about dark matter, very fascinating. And they started with his, his big booming voice, kind of like the voice of God, saying, our universe started you know, so many trillions of years ago in a big bang, and they show it. And I'm going, really? You're going to totally indoctrinate people into this? Because the Big Bang Theory is not a proven theory about how the universe started. And it's a theory that's riddled with holes. But you know, if you get somebody on who just uses a big voice and says this is the way it is in definitive terms, and you just keep showing that to children over and over and over again, you're just telling them, shut up and believe what we say. And nobody ever goes, hey, let's, and the reason I know this is because a job I used to have, someone told me, OK, how much of the story I want to get into? OK, so because I, I, was, I was involved with a spiritual community and the, the, the philosophy that we were using involved evolution, someone gave me the job of trying to determine whether the Big Bang Theory was true or not. So I read all the books I could find on that supported the Big Bang and all the books I could find that didn't support, that were against it. And basically, who knows? I mean, it's, it's definitely not proven. There's definitely a million holes in the theory that don't actually work unless you make up like weird constants and things and, and ideas like dark matter to like, because you know, they, they keep discovering things that can't work with the theory. So then they make up something else to make up for that. Uh, but at the same time, there is no other theory that's as good as that one. So it is kind of the front runner at the moment. But they talk about it as if it's the truth. I was recently did a class, and I spoke here a couple of times on quantum physics. And is a quantum physicist and doctor named uh, Lanza, Robert Lanza. And his whole thing is like, quantum physics is 100 years old now. There are, theor there are Experiments that have been done for 100 years over and over and over and over and over again. They've never proven false. These are not out there experimental results. These are tried and true. They completely would tell us things like, this is not matter the way we're trained. And yet we insist on continuing to believe it, which is what Buckminster Fuller said we would insist on continuing to say sunrise, even, we know, even though we know the sun's not rising and the Earth is rotating. And so what if we said morning rotation? This, this is a thought. I, I really want to get 20 people who are willing to do this. Just always say morning rotation and evening rotation. And then 10 years from now, let's see if when we see that thing that we're calling morning rotation, we actually feel ourselves rolling forward into the sun. Because I bet we will. We'll just change our neurology so that we start to feel the Earth's rotation. And you know, Buckminster Fuller was so adamant about this because he felt like part of the reason we're destroying the planet is because we're living in a medieval sensibility of the Earth and not a modern one. So in the same way, what I want to say is that your experience of living, of being inside a material body that's thinking is a conditioned experience. And because we keep talking about it that way over and over and over again, we keep having the feeling that this is the case. But the fact that it feels that way doesn't make it true. You know, that's. The fact that it's a conditioned response doesn't make it not true either. Doesn't make it not true either. Right. Absolutely. No. And there's some truth underneath it. Well, Absolutely. So, so you're having, the real problem is you're having to hold these contradictory ideas right. simultaneously. Absolutely. So, so in the work that I do, I call this particular way of using your mind a wormhole inquiry. <clears throat> so what I, uh, because it's not about coming to a new truth that you can now believe in. right? It's about holding two things that are contradictory, and neither one can be proven. And yet, they're contradictory, right? So, so basically, it's a paradox of a sense. So how do you hold these two things that both fit? For instance, how do you hold the fact that this is this, the material theory about all this holds up to your experience? But also, this could be a dream. And you can't tell which is which. And if you really keep like, letting yourself hold those, 
until they really get to be equal, there's a kind of intensity that makes you feel like, oh my god, if I keep going this way, I'm going to go crazy. And if you hold yourself in the intensity of not knowing, uh, my experience is there, there's a possibility that something completely different will pop through, right? Because you're, you're actually not knowing. And so then something can come through. And so I call it a wormhole inquiry because that something coming through is like falling through a wormhole, you know, a wormhole in space that takes you from one universe to another. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what this kind of inquiry is all about. It's not about me coming in and telling you a new sense of self that you can then adhere to and then feel good that you now know this. <coughs> it's about just not knowing. So I want you to close your eyes again. And I want you to just become aware of the difference between raw sensation and interpreted sensation. See, it's very difficult because we interpret our sensation so quickly that often we mistake interpreted sensation for raw sensation. This is a, like a meditative skill that I mean, I think traditionally it just takes years to develop it, but I personally believe it wouldn't need to take that long. So the trick, and you can feel, you may be able to feel it, the trick is, as soon as you feel something, the knowing of what it is appears almost instantaneously. Like, that's my hand. That's my knee. But if you... Before that knowing appears, before the words appear, there's just a sensation. So I'm just asking you to become aware of the raw sensation prior to interpretation. which is really just another way to ask you to not know, to just let go of all knowing. Okay, thank you. So from a materialistic viewpoint, the way that you think about the universe is that it's a universe of space, of matter and space that has developed over time. That's, that's materialism. It's a good theory. And even though it's very dominant right now, it's only been dominant for the last few hundred years. Prior to that, idealism was really the dominant theory of reality. And idealism says that the foundation of reality is, is consciousness, is mind, is maybe you could imagine it as that raw sensation, uninterpreted sensation. And then, so in the materialist viewpoint, 
the universe starts as empty space and material particles and stuff that collect into everything that we currently see and feel, including ourselves. In idealism, everything starts as kind of pure experience or raw sensational potential, and that starts to get interpreted. And eventually, it gets interpreted exactly into the shape that we're currently interpreting it, at least for our species. And the interpretation is such a, such a strong habit that we don't know how to see it any other way, that we're, we're stuck in this particular interpretation. And central to that interpretation is the interpretation of ourselves as being the being that exists in this skin-encased body. And in addition, we see ourselves as being uh, the seat of consciousness. So that consciousness we think is coming from inside us. Usually, we associate it with our brain. Maybe some people associate it with our hearts. Um, but we think we're conscious, for sure. Uh, and we think that the consciousness is coming from us, which is why, which is why we think we're going to die because we are associated with our consciousness, and we think that consciousness is going to disappear when the body disappears. Um, my experience tells me that that's not what's going to happen, that the consciousness that I am was here before uh, the, this body appeared, and it will be here after. Uh, it just won't be in this form. It'll be somewhere else, in some other form. So the way that we develop the identity that we have is we develop this capacity for abstract reason, which is the capacity, part of which is the capacity to identify things. So first we identified physical things, glass, water, book, table. You know, I mean, I guess in the early days, we were probably identifying other things than those. We were identifying, who knows, enemy, cave, whatever we were identifying. But um, we learned how to identify things. First, they were concrete, and then later they became abstract. We could identify things like emotions, love. We could start to identify things like political systems, democracy, uh, economic systems, capitalism, socialism. Right? These are not physical, tangible things, but they're things. They're uh, they're things that we can identify. And we created one called ourselves, which is a collection of ideas about ourselves that we now go, OK, this is now an abstract thing. It's called Jeff. And you know, in the kind of neti neti uh, traditions, you go through and say, OK, what are, you, know, you realize you're not your body. You, know, you have a body, but you're not your body. You have thoughts, but you're not your thoughts. You, of course, the easy ones, I have a job, but I'm not my job, but we all already know that. You know, the trickier ones have to do with thoughts and feelings. You know, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings, I have those things. I experience those things, but the one that experienced them is not them. And if you keep going back and back and back, that's when you, you, know, you have this opportunity of falling into emptiness. You know, that's the Satori experience, is you, you start going back so fast that you trip and you kind of fall into nothing. And I actually uh, currently know someone who had a very powerful Satori a couple of weeks ago. And so she's now in this state of, it's a little bit treacherous place at the beginning because it can, can become very nihilistic because you're not sure. You don't really exist. Nothing really exists. It can get very tricky. You know? But if you keep going, you'll find something else on the other side. Uh, on the other side of the nihilism. So, so we learned how to identify a me, right? a Jeff, that has all kinds of qualities and characteristics. And then I assume that there's a somebody that all of those qualities and characteristics belong to. But that's an assumption. And you can never find that somebody. You know, that's why you know, your answer at the beginning and Nina's answer about the isness. You know, this is the classic answer, particularly in Eastern traditions. But knowing the answer is really not that helpful. 
right? Because anybody can know the answer. You just pick up a book on the internet or something. You can get the answer. Experiencing the reality of the answer uh, is profoundly liberating. And it has nothing to do with what you know. In fact, everything that you know is kind of going to work against you in this particular domain because it's all connected to you knowing it, right? So the whole idea that I know something is already connected to the one who knows. So that's why they say, you know, your knowing won't help. Uh, and in some ways, that's true. So you, we, we created an identity, right? So this is talk tonight is who are you, an exploration of identity. We created an identity. And you know, if we were doing like a week on identity, we, I could ask you to write out all the different characteristics of your identity, and you'd be able to check them off that none of them are you. Um, and you'd see how incredibly detailed our identity is, you know, and, and it's, a, it's just, but it, you'll also see it's actually just a story. It's a, your identity is a story about you that you assume is pointing to an actual person that that story is about. Yes, sir. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Oh, good question. Why do we create this identity? Um, well, I don't want to demonize the identity either, you know, because the reason we created it is because that's how. This is like me talking, you know. How do I know how why we created the identity? I'm just going to say what I. Right, but I'm going to give you one anyway because I can't help myself. Um, identity, language, and identity are the mediums through which we interact as human beings. And the way culture evolves is identity, new identities are formed that allow us to interact in more harmonious and more beneficial ways. And there's, so there's nothing wrong with identity. I'm not a real fan of, of living without identity. I don't know that anyone does. And the few people that I saw who are leading contenders for that are not people whose lives I actually want to emulate. Because mostly they just sit and don't know how to feed themselves. Uh, which is not really something I'm shooting for. Uh, but what I, so, okay, good. So, so like, basically, here's my theory, you know. I, I have this very strange job, which I selected for myself, which is to teach this kind of thing. And there is no authority here. You know, there's just ideas, and hopefully the ideas lead to something positive. But, I believe that the way human beings progress, either as individuals or as cultures, is through a succession of, of the growth of new identity. right? So the medieval identity was one thing. And, and inside that identity, where you were a serf in some big chain of being and you had no option of going. And, you know, in, in, in medieval times, most people didn't even have a concept that you could think. You know, they, they, when they would read, they would look at, you know, I mean, most people couldn't read. But those people that could read, when they read, they thought the words were moving their mouth. They didn't think that the words had meaning that went in their brain and that they were then speaking. They thought, oh, you know, just like when I touch this glass, right, the, the glass is shaping where my fingers can go. So in the same way, they thought when you look at these words, the words make your mouth move. So uh, who's the one? The Confessions of St. Augustine. St. Augustine had this, this supposedly magic power. He could look at a scroll with words on it. And so then people would come like this and sit to see. And he would go like this. Just notice my lips aren't moving. Just notice. They're not going to move not even a little. The literary movement known as Romanticism, I can't remember the rest. The literary movement known as Romanticism. And people would go, <gasps> and then read the first line right there. The first line right here? No, the top, the oh, page. The, top. the literary movement known as Romanticism. And then the people would go, oh, <laughs> he took in the words without moving his lips, he is truly a saint. 
So that was his saintly power, that he could read words without using his lips, because they didn't, they didn't understand the concept of mind. So imagine what kind of self-identity you have when you don't even understand the concept. Like, there's no way we can get into the, the, the identity of a medieval serf, because the, it's so different from where we are. And in the world of that identity, we can look back historically. You could see what was possible. And not a whole heck of a lot, really. And, and a lot of stuff that was really violent and pretty horrible. Um, and so through movements like the troubadours and, and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, we developed this identity of the thinking thing, is the way I like to refer to it, the, the, the one that we have. And look at the world that the thinking thing creates. Much better. You know, still got a lot of problems, I guarantee, I guarantee but nobody's like, you know, if they had, a, if they had a, a plane that came and said, okay, this is a trip to the 1100s, anybody want to go? There's no way I'm getting on that plane. <laughs> but I want to go on a trip to like a thousand years from now when things are even better. And the, the way that you take that trip is that you participate in the formation of the next sense of self. So that's, today's talk is, is roughly in the domain of a book I wrote called The Soul of a New Self. So all of this kind of contemplation is all about loosening up our adherence to our current identity so that we're more available and more free for a new possibility of identity to emerge, so that we're not so glued to what we currently see. And this goes way below the who am I question, which has to do with, you know, am I Jeff or am I Jeff? Oh, unfortunately, his name is Jeff, too. Am I Jeff or am I Matt? It has to do with the what question that Nina brought up is, what am I? You know, and I think I want to end the talk with just a little reframing of the theory of evolution. This is something I used to do a lot at one time, but I haven't done it in a long time. But I, I think it's feeling good right now. Though we're going to just go with more or less the theory of evolution as it's currently known, even though I'm not really sure how true that is. But we're going to go with it for the moment. And imagine, imagine that at the beginning of the universe, there was an intelligence. You know, it, 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 so this is, this is what idealism would say. The universe begins with consciousness, not with matter. Robert Lanza, the, the, the physicist, the, uh, actually he's a biologist, but he uh, writes about quantum theory, says he has a theory called biocentrism, in which he says, you know, our current materialist viewpoint has some major problems with it. And those could be solved if we just made a little bit of a shift. The major problems are we don't know where life came from, and we don't know where consciousness come from. And given the primacy of life and consciousness, a theory that can't explain those things is really a theory that's probably one we need to question. Uh, and he said, you know, you can avoid those problems if you return to a more idealistic assumption and assume that there was conscious that the universe is living from the start and conscious from the start. So you start with consciousness. And then let's even say that matter forms. Who knows? Maybe it's true. Matter starts to form. And, and matter holds a certain amount of consciousness. But the, depending on the form of, of matter, you, know, you get more and more consciousness able to be held until you start to get these, you know, what we call living beings. But of course, in this theory, everything's alive. So a rock is also alive, as well as a tree, as well as an animal, as well as a human. They're just. It's just we only recognize life that looks like our life. You know? So we don't recognize the life of a rock because it looks too bizarre to us. But assuming it's true, what happens in, in human beings is that finally the consciousness that's emerging through this form as being human is able to form a self-concept. And, and, but because it's the first species to form a self-concept, it makes the mistake of assuming the consciousness that, it, that it's now become aware of is coming from itself. Because it looks around and goes, well, it doesn't seem to be coming from any of these other animals. It must be coming from me. 
Now imagine if another species developed consciousness. What a, what a like, that would be a real newsflash, right? <laughs> if all of a sudden we discovered that there was some lizard somewhere and they were like having conversations in their own language and they, they had their own technology, we'd be like, whoa, we got something wrong. <laughs> so hopefully that'll happen, but if it doesn't, you know, we can understand why on any planet where self-conscious awareness arose first in a single species, that that species would mistakenly assume that the consciousness was coming from itself. But if you were the, if you were the intelligence that was there from the start, this is the way I like to think about it, you know, if you were there and you'd be watching this whole thing, imagine if you've been watching, this is like the most boring show in the universe. It takes trillions of years. And for the first like 10 trillion, it's just kind of energies and collisions of subatomic particles. And you're watching every day, hoping for something. Then eventually, on this one planet, you see oh, there's a self-conscious life form. There's finally a life form that recognizes it's conscious. And look what it can do. Oh my god, it's amazing. But it thinks it's conscious. It doesn't realize the consciousness is coming from me, from the universe itself. And it's hoping that somebody's going to realize. You know, it's like I, I think of it as the, like one of those um, theaters where they do the operation and then all the students watch from the glass. And so in the glass, there's something like God or the consciousness of the universe looking in from the outside, going, trying to get the attention of somebody on that little planet. Going, no, 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 I'm, I'm, it's me. And then, and then finally someone looks up and goes, oh I, get, oh, oh, I get it. The consciousness that's coming through me isn't mine. It doesn't exist just from this body. It's coming through the whole universe. I'm just the mouthpiece. I'm just the end point of this. And then what happens to your sense of identity if you realize that you're not just a single life form on a planet, but you are the consciousness of the entire cosmos. So see, I, I had a very bizarre life. Um, but I came into this world knowing a secret that I later forgot. And now when I look back, I realize Right or wrong, the life I'm living was going to unfold based on how I came in. So when I was like three, four, I used to have this trick, which is I would go into the bathroom, my parents' house, obviously. They had a full-length mirror on the door. And I would lock the door to lock myself in. And then I would stare at my own eyes. And I would just sit there. And then I would wait until I started to blow up. And, and my eyes would start to rise because my body was getting bigger. And then I would go through the roof. First, I'd go through like the, the floor above, then through the roof. Then I'd be as big as the town. Then I'd be as big as the world. And then I'd go all the way out until the entire universe was my body. And it was, oh, it was just elation. You know, and, I, and then when I got there, I would just enjoy it for a minute. Oh, it's like some kind of cosmic ecstasy. And then I would let myself get smaller and smaller and smaller. And then I'd go back through the roof, back through the second floor. And then, boom, I'd be my like, four-year-old self staring in my own eyes. And then I'd just unlock the door and go like that. And I would do it whenever I felt a little blue. you know. Um, and then one day. I couldn't do it anymore. I went in the bathroom, and I looked, and I looked, and I just I had no idea how I used to do that. And I got so depressed. And, and later, I kind of forgot about it until I was a bit older, and then I started on a spiritual search, which now I realize was a search for what I had lost. And it wasn't until I was about 39, and I was on a retreat, and I was sitting in meditation, and, and I went up through the roof, and I got as big as the whole cosmos again. And I had that experience of just exhilarating ecstasy of recognizing who I was. And then I came back down. And when I got back down into my meditation cushion, I thought, holy shit. I used to do that when I was like four. And I, then I had this whole memory of what I would do when I was a kid. 
and, and so the reason I'm just wanting to shake up your identity is because that cosmic being is who I personally believe we are. And the, the intelligence of that cosmic being is getting crammed through the filter of our belief in being just this little bit of meat. And I know that if we loosen up that identity, we start to become available for a kind of recognition of the reality of who we are. And this is kind of what I do. And it's really, it's a very strange job. I never intended to be doing anything like this. But uh, I can't not do it because you know, what we are is so magnificent. And what we are willing to settle for is so small. Uh, and, and I don't really know how to share this as I said at the beginning. So I just keep trying. Uh, and, and that's everything I have to say. <laughs>